This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Rocket Money. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash missionlog. That's rocketmoney.com slash missionlog. Again, that's rocketmoney.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 511, Concerning Flight. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we explore the new worlds of Star Trek, one episode at a time, and through a combination of science and magic, determine the morals, meanings, and messages worth analysis. Maestro, if you please. This week, concerning flight, the one which is not only about flight, but also causes some concern for those people about to fly. We'll have a chance to get inventive with our trivia and commentary in a moment. But first, here's Norman to tell you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here's John Champion with this week's trivia. Well, thank you very much. This week's show concerning flight, we have a story by Jimmy Diggs and Joe Minoski. They share a story credit on this one. And uh, both of those names should be familiar, of course. Joe, who has been working as executive story editor on the show at this time, and Jimmy has already contributed Dr. Bashir, I presume, to DS9. And his most recent Voyager credit that we covered was Rise. Now, the teleplay credit goes solely to Joe Minoski, but this is one of those stories that had a troubled development from page to screen. The premise had started out as simply a way to use the mobile emitter, and then an adventure happens. Brandon Braga is the one who suggested putting Leonardo da Vinci front and center, and the story grew from there. But in the collaborative nature of TV script writing, Joe was often at odds with the influence of other writers and producers on the show. Changes were being made right up until the last minute, even as the cameras were rolling. It is an interesting note, too, that Joe is a fan of Leonardo, and he was able to pull from his own extensive knowledge to help flesh out the character for the episode. The show was directed by Jesus Salvador Trevino, and we were right in the middle of his five-episode credits on Voyager. Jesus had also directed three for DS9, and on Voyager, we most recently discussed his work with the episode Day of Honor. 
Now, of course, you spend a good deal of time in sound stages on this episode, but there are some stunning location shots here, and they, they may look a little familiar to you all. You have a location used pretty much as is in the Santa Monica Mountains, and then you've got some shots where they've done some pretty extensive matte painting coverage over those mountains. But it was sort of designed around those mountains so you could have this one place to do the launch of Leonardo's flying machine. But of course, it's all local and easily accessible to a studio in Hollywood being in the Santa Monica Mountains. All right, now let's meet our guest stars. We have an unnamed alien who drops by Voyager, and he is played by Don Pugsley. Part of his adulthood was taken up with military service. Don was a Green Beret and served in the Special Forces. In the 80s, he turned his attention to performing and landed a number of feature film roles, along with TV guest star spots. He's in Fat Man and Little Boy, Naked Gun 2 and a Half, The Revenant, and he's in The Rocketeer as Goose. The episode's antagonist, a dealer of objects of dubious provenance, is Tao, played by John Vargas. Now, this is the first time we've highlighted John, but it is not the first time we've seen him in Star Trek. With his human face, John was Jetta, one of the scientists aboard Regular One, but he met an untimely end when Captain Terrell, under Khan's influence, blasted him with a phaser. Okay, well, Technically, Terrell wasn't aiming at Jetta, so I guess Savick is to thank for that. Uh, you guys can debate it later. Uh, John has an extensive resume going back to the early 80s, and he has some notable long-recurring roles on popular shows. He spent a while on Santa Barbara, Days of Our Lives, and General Hospital. He jumped over to Silk Stalkings, At Ease, and Action, and most recently, he has appeared on SWAT. And finally... Captain Janeway's holodeck mentor come to life, Leonardo da Vinci, is played once again for the second and final time here by the great John Rhys Davies. Does this episode actually concern flight, or does it concern a flight that is also very concerning? Should I be worried? Prologue. In the holodeck simulation of Leonardo da Vinci's workshop, the maestro is humiliated after the failure of his prototype flying machine. Janeway tries to give him the encouragement he needs, but he's so fed up with it all that he plans to move to France and work with the much more sympathetic and rich king. Their conversation is interrupted, though, when alien fire on Voyager takes Janeway's attention back to the bridge, and the maestro perceives it as an earthquake— all the more reason to move to France. Act 1. Yep, feisty little alien ships are unleashing weapon volleys on Voyager to keep the crew on their toes. But what's more odd is that they are beaming away some of Voyager's more important tech. Rations, warp diagnostics, weapons, medical equipment, the main computer, even the doctor's mobile emitter. Voyager can fire back manually and sends the attackers away, but the ship is hobbled. First priority is to shore up defenses against another potential transporter attack and then track down and recover the missing gear. Seven of Nine and Harry Kim are on the case by boosting Voyager's sensor array, and they are fine. Whatever, they're working together. The less said about that, the better. Moving on. 
Ten days later, Voyager finds a planet thriving off multi-alien species trading and strong signals from Federation equipment on the surface. Janeway forms landing parties to give it a look. In a busy trading marketplace, Janeway and Tuvok pinpoint a Starfleet signal, but it's not Voyager's missing computer. It's Leonardo da Vinci wearing the doctor's mobile emitter and shouting, Welcome to America, to his friend. Act two. Leonardo doesn't know how he got here, but he's got a healthy imagination for a hologram. His attention quickly turns to a trader who has a part Leonardo needs for his next invention to keep his patron happy. While he's distracted, Janeway and Tuvok surmise that the Leonardo program was running when they were attacked and happened to be downloaded into the stolen mobile emitter. So here's a 16th century simulation reacting to the new world as only he can, carving out a life here and carrying out his work for the prince. So with some new kit, the three of them head off to the maestro's new workshop, It's full of Leonardo's touches, along with some very advanced technology, like phasers for one thing. While Leonardo seems more concerned with getting his failed flying machine to work, he is aware of the awesome power of this weapon that shoots lightning and can vaporize anything in its path, compliments of the patron who Janeway is curious to meet. Meanwhile, on Voyager, Tom Paris and Neelix have returned from their away mission with an alien who happens to have traded with someone for a Starfleet phaser, tricorder, and uniform. Chakotay backs him into a corner to get some more info about where those stolen goods came from. The alien complies. It's from a powerful trader named Tao who controls a large province and deals in the weapons and goods he steals from passing ships. Cut to an alien in the market for weapons trying to broker a deal with Tao. Tao is smooth but also a bit intimidating when he directly implies to his waffling customer that he'll gladly sell weapons to that one's enemies if he balks at the price. Around this time, Janeway spots the patron, Tao, from a distance and wants to get a closer look. She sends Tuvok to distract Leonardo, which is just enough time to strike up a conversation with Tao. Janeway pretends to represent a client looking for a powerful computer that can coordinate an entire colony. And coincidentally, Tao has just the right item. He activates an interface that has a very familiar voice, the Voyager computer. Janeway wants it, but Tao names his price, nothing less than a trade for a warship. Act 3. In Leonardo's new workshop, Tuvok reviews the maestro's maps, which could aid Voyager's computer in helping to locate where Tao is hiding all of his stolen goods. When Leonardo enters after a long rest, Tuvok pauses the program to insist that they return to Voyager and finish their recon there. Janeway wants to stay, though, and to let the Leonardo program continue to run, because that might be an advantage to finding the missing items from Voyager. On the ship, the doctor tries to make small talk, well, fishing for gossip, more like, from Seven of Nine, but she's not all that forthcoming. She returns to Astrometrics to help Tuvok use their scanner data, along with Leonardo's maps, to pinpoint a location of Voyager's computer core. 
They're successful, but the building they identify is protected by a dispersion field. Someone, Janeway, will need to go inside and initiate a power surge. That would allow the transporter to lock onto it and beam it away, and anything or anyone else back to Voyager. Tuvok opens up a channel to Janeway to explain the plan, but there's an unexpected visitor in the workshop, Tao. He hears the whole thing, and he's got Janeway at gunpoint demanding that she hand over the comm badge. Act 4. Thank goodness Leonardo sneaks up from behind and knocks Tao unconscious. While that helps Janeway, Leonardo is convinced that he wants to stay in this new world, if only because he has so many more resources and the respect of the people around him. Janeway insists, though. This place is a prison, and he does not belong here. He's needed at home, and Janeway needs him too. And that's why he changes his mind for Katarina. On Voyager, the bridge crew are able to track the mobile emitter, which indicates that Leonardo and potentially Janeway are on the way to track down Voyager's computer, which they are. They make their way into a large industrial facility where Tao has been stashing his stolen gear, a whole lot of it from Voyager. Janeway finds the computer and initiates an overload, which will tip off Voyager for their precise location. Transporters are activated and... Well, here's Tao now with his weapon drawn, and he fires directly at Leonardo. The beam passes through him, and while he's distracted, Janeway incapacitates Tao with a blow to the back of his head. Leonardo is seriously confused about what just happened, but Janeway encourages him to come along to safety via a site-to-site transporter. They escape, but back on Voyager, enemy ships are closing in fast. Act 5 Having transported to temporary safety on a mountainside, Leonardo is still trying to get his head around these technological marvels, the computer, the site-to-site transport. Janeway tries her best to put it into context, that there may be realities beyond the limits of human comprehension, and Leonardo now finds himself in one. They can't talk long, though, as Tao is in pursuit, but Leonardo directs Janeway to a higher point on the mountain. Voyager flies to a lower orbit in order to transport Janeway and Leonardo, signaled by the mobile emitter. That's dangerous, considering they are also fighting off those attacking vessels. On the ground, Leonardo has a surprise for Janeway. Just as Tau's guards get closer, they approach a new prototype of the flying machine with some improvements since the last failed attempt. As Tau's guard opens fire, they have only this chance to escape and push off from the precipice. In the right position, Voyager is able to pick up the mobile emitter along with Janeway and the flying machine and beam the lot of them into a cargo bay. Voyager out. Now with some downtime, Janeway checks in on Leonardo in the holodeck. He's busy packing for France. After his recent experiences and proving his glider works, he's off for a new opportunity with someone who appreciates his creativity. He's newly inspired by what he has seen, and Katerina gives him the encouragement to seek out new worlds by walking him off to his hollow carriage. The end. Nice and toit, John. You know, some episodes lend themselves to being toit like a toiger. Like a toiger, yeah. Thank you, yeah. 
now, now we get to have a little fun with it. What, uh, what do you got for me to kick things off? One of these days, we'll actually encounter like mm-hmm. a Voyager episode that actually does have a tiger. Then what are we going to do? That will be the Toitus episode, yeah. Toitus, Toitus, mm-hmm. T-O-I-G-H-T. Here's a question. So yeah. Janeway's in the Da Vinci program at the very beginning, in the prologue. Uh-huh. And she's in uniform, but she's been in cosplay in previous the hollow novels that she was in so why not with da vinci you know that's i i'm so glad you phrase that because as you're saying it i'm i'm sitting here thinking well the computer can see the human player however the computer wants to see it It, that that's just an interactive character for the computer and it doesn't matter what that what the human player is wearing right so when a character when a human or or other <laughs> organic entity walks into a holodeck simulation wearing a costume is really just for yourself and for the other human <laughs> or organic players yeah you know mm-hmm. it really is that's kind of cool so we saw in the prologue that uh, janeway and da vinci were both drenched yeah. by plunging into the river the plunge into the river yeah. yeah so when she appears in the bridge in act one either she left the holodeck and the holographic water just evaporated or she changed yeah yeah i'm thinking I, I holographic water evaporates I guess so, although remember when Wesley Crusher threw a snowball out of the holodeck, it still hit and, you know, didn't it hit Picard in the face? Or the, so, you uh, know, that, that holographic water made it out into the hallway, but yeah. I don't know. So many mysteries. Look, right. I'm going to have many, many questions about this episode oh. and the logistics thereof. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, John's already so, setting the stage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, only just starting with the holodeck. All right, uh, all right. First of all, I want to know how these aliens just know what to beam away because it seemed very specific, very precise. Like, here's this tray of medical equipment, but we're going to take the emitter, you know, <laughs> and then we're going to take this whole computer. I guess then they know how to hook it up to things. So they took that as well uh, or do they just take things that they think can get away with and they figure it out later that seems like a waste of time and resources and does the doctor need to give his mobile emitter a rest from time to time because i think he likes it quite a lot so i'm surprised that he doesn't have it on it's just there on a tray just like oh here here's this thing that i'm not going to wear right now i'm going to let voyager's computer take over and project me for a while that seems very convenient well, he's got to stick um, it on the, the the magnetic charger yeah oh yeah yeah see, yeah it's got like the the chi yeah. charger yeah exactly. so he's using yeah. that yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> tuvok every now and then gets a good line i like the i have the will but not the means i loved that <laughs> line i loved <laughs> it jade way tells him to fire at will yeah, yeah nice bit but kind of like springboarding off of that though firing at will all of these aliens they they transport stuff willy-nilly off the ship you know haphazardly yeah, yeah. and then janeway orders Voyager to just fire blindly at any moving target. So what if she destroyed the actual ship that actually had her computer, you know, the, right. the, the main computer console on it or the main computer component on it or anything that was really important? What they would, do blow up a ship. <laughs> I mean, they yeah. did. They destroyed a ship. It's like, yeah. What would happen? It's like, well, we destroyed a ship that had our main computer component on it. Well, yeah. okay. So. Or, or it destroyed it, nothing else but the hollow emitter. <laughs> 
sorry, <laughs> sorry, doctor. Or 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 maybe to Tom Paris's yeah. point, the the uh, the ration, the emergency rations, the, the rations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> everything else is safe. Yeah, except for the emergency mm-hmm. rations. Yeah, I did wonder though how much of Voyager's systems you can take away and things will still work. Because think about it, they took away the computer, they took away warp diagnostics, but Voyager is still able to maneuver and fire back and have life support. Importantly, so they seem hobbled, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, well, we're fine. Well, we're just slower. I mean, Chakotay said, know. like, you know, activate backup systems, and there's always that kind of like that that funny kind of like you know trope of auxiliary systems. We don't really yeah. know. I mean, I'm sure somebody does. I mean, you're very smart people out there. Of course, you know, you know yeah. what the, they all do, like Battle Bridge type stuff. But yeah, yeah, I mean, when you lose your main computer, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, look, I've got a lot of equipment in here in this room with me, but if you take away the computer, I, John, just <laughs> activate the backup a, computer. I just, I, I'm not, I'm not making a podcast. <laughs> right, you know. Oh God, I pointed it out, but a, another awkward Harry and Seven of Nine. Say, we're we're just we're gonna skip it. Oh. We're just gonna move yeah, right pin on. Pin that, please. <laughs> okay, yeah. all right. I am very much in love with the matte painting right over the Santa Monica Mountains. I'm gonna come back to that too, but I just wanted to point out the earliest shot of it that we get. Pretty extensive, a lot of background and foreground stuff. Very cool. I do love uh, Tuvok's away team uniform. Oh, he looks great. So yeah. it's it's a really if you look like really really closely at it, it's a really nice combination of like the monster maroon pattern with the tunic flap. Yeah, but it also has like the yeah. DS nine quilting like on the upper part of his uniform. Yeah, but and I know that I don't want to break the timeline, but it even looks like with the thicker piping that goes diagonally across his chest than down. Yeah, it looks like something like this could have been the inspiration from or for maybe some of the current Star Trek uniform design oh, patterns. Some of the some of the post twenty seventeen yeah. Trek era. It's yeah. really really nice. I mean, it's it's really good. That's a cosplay yeah. worth doing for sure. Yeah, yeah. I do wonder when they get there. Why did Tuvok and Janeway just assume that everything was stolen? Like, <laughs> I mean, I mean, they're, they're right, you know, because their stuff was stolen. But he just get there. There's a lot of things here. They must be stolen. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, it is kind of like they're dealing with pack leads, only more competent. So is that possible? Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they are smart. History. They are smart. Yeah. yeah, please don't think too hard about how the Leonardo simulation is running. Please turn things off when you're not using them, people. That's just a good lesson right away, right up front. Mm-hmm. And then that simulation is downloaded into the doctor's emitter because somehow the doctor wasn't using it, and his program was safe in Voyager's computer, which I guess is not part of it that got stolen. So there's a lot of coincidental stuff going on here. One of our Discord listeners, and uh, fantastic mm-hmm. in terms of all these details. So I'm challenging Pax Federatica. You hear this? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, so you, you make right. sense of all of this. I know you can. We're going to get if a anyone can, chart. Yeah, you can. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and, and Da Vinci's like, new lab, I love seeing the sharper image plasma ball. Everyone yes. knows what the sharper yes. image plasma ball is in his, so cool. in his lab. Yeah. In Da Vinci's lab also, there are like all of these recreations of all of these inventions mm-hmm. and his maps, and uh, including his own admission that he recreated like this model of his great bird invention. Yeah. In 10 days, he's done yeah. all of this, not to mention all of the topographical maps that he's articulated since he's been there. So do you believe that, I, John? When he's inspired... I guess he can do just about anything. I guess so. Uh, when Janeway picked up the phaser, though, on the table in his lab, it reminded me of that scene when Kirk explained how 
these heaters work. Heaters, right. quote unquote heaters, worked with yeah. Bella Oxmix yeah. and Piece of the Action that could blow out the entire wall. Yeah, yeah, I love that. <laughs> Such an awkward, awkward, lovely scene. Here's a weird thing. Speaking of those fancy heaters, mm-hmm. uh, th- this no-name trader who we bring up to Voyager, he's just allowed to keep that phaser rifle and a tricorder. Now, I did wonder why Tau stole uniforms. That makes no sense whatsoever. But this guy, they're like, yeah, yeah, you can go and you can keep that stuff. Like, <laughs> why? why? No, no, that belongs to you. You can literally beam him off the ship without that stuff. That is a good option for you, too. Chakotay, as long as you're in charge. Wasn't there an episode that talked specifically about Voyager's technological contamination of the Delta Quadrant? (laughs) Yeah, I know. Yes, yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I thought Tuvok's small talk, very entertaining. And the the reference, you know, him being from Scandinavia and, of course, the little Vulcan reference there as well. All nice stuff. And, of course, the Voyager computer has 47 million data channels. Of course course it's 47. But I did enjoy going through all the tech specs, like the operating temperature and all that stuff. I always read the manual, Mm -hmm. people. You need to, you know. Here's a cool thing. You're talking about how much work Leonardo's cranking out in that 10 days. I like that he woke up and drew the dragon that he was dreaming about, which was kind of cool because if if we go down this path of what the holodeck can do, what a holo character can do, that is a holo character being appropriately creative. That, in this case, this holodeck creation dreamed of electric dragons. Oh, very <laughs> Philip K. Dick of you. Uh-huh, right. Um, put a pin in that because I do have a point about that in discussion. Okay, good. So Da Vinci changed into his sleeping clothes, lamented the fact that he probably slept in a little too long. So assuming that he has no idea about the yep. mobile emitter or what it does, because why would he? How yeah. does he change into anything? Oh. How does, like, how does he actually physically remove anything from his body because he's literally, like the doctor, like a hologram? outside yeah. of the holodeck, but he's fixed to what the mobile right. emitter downloaded from his program. Right. Maybe that's like a failsafe that the hollow emitter has, is that the character can't turn off or remove that device. It's, it's all good. Good question. That 29th yeah. century technology, man. I'm telling you, man, it yeah. is. It is literally the yeah. deus ex yeah. technologia of our story. <laughs> now, look, Tuvok has a very good point about returning to Voyager. I think he's right. But why is Janeway insistent about letting the Leonardo program run? It, it kind of doesn't make sense. Like, Leonardo is creative and talented. Yes, absolutely. But what is the opportunity that Janeway thinks she's taking advantage of by letting the program just run? Like, cut your losses, take the equipment, go. <laughs> go home, you know? It's almost as if uh, you read the notes that I didn't post to the to the actual document before you wrote your oh, notes. Oh, funny. Okay, <laughs> all right, all right. This is going to get interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, I did like the uh, Seven of Nine and Doctor scene. Uh, say, suffice to say, I was correct. She was not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just great Seven of Nine line. And I love the Doctor's need for gossip. Like, he's stuck in there and he can't take it anymore. And he wants to hear the profane Klingon insults, which I kind of want to hear, too. And I'm sure that many of our listeners could share those with us. It's like under um, a strange like version of House Arrest. You know? Yeah, yeah, right, right. And he just can't take it, you know. Seven says it's illogical to refer to a holodeck program by name. And I thought that was interesting. But even if Leonardo isn't alive, he slash it 
still has a name. And I would think that the Borg would understand all sorts of things, naturally occurring or not, having designations, mm. having names, you know. But anyway, you know, interesting point. I think it's a clever way for the writers to use the word illogical with, yes. with Jerry and with Tim because their scene together was oh. – magical i mean so you have so good two people playing pretty much like in, in this in, in emotionless space you know with yeah. uh with with seven and and with tuvok and it's it's like even as emotionless as they are they're yeah. so unbelievably subtle in their nuances yes and that just, it's like that right it's the right level of being completely understanding but also a little competitive mm -hmm. and it, it's great yeah it's absolutely cool. Now, as far as the plot goes, again, so many questions here. It, it, we just we, we go a few short steps from we can't find the computer to it's there in the building and now we know everything about the building. Like, <laughs> like it is that quick. That scene, like that scene, is good because Jerry Ryan and Tim Russ are so good, right? But otherwise, like if you follow the plot of that scene, it's like we know nothing. But there it is. Now we know everything about it. Go to time code twenty six oh nine. Back to this lovely. I said I was going to mention the matte paintings again. Mm -hmm. Here's another shot of a matte painting over the mountains. And I love it. There's a flying object over that matte painting. And I kept studying it and watching, see if I could get some detail out of it. And I kept thinking, well, whether it's just an airplane that they happen to capture in the film plate, or if it's a deliberate piece of animation, either way, it's great because it lends life to that matte painting. I'll do yeah. you one better, John. I'll do you one better. At yeah. timestamp 2608... Yep. Because we probably looked at the same matte painting. Same shot. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Is that the Griffith Observatory in the background to the far right? Oh, you know, it might be. Looking at that particular yeah. mountain range perspective of the, you know, of, yeah. of that, what is it, like Hollywood Hills? Not the Hollywood Hills, but uh, you know that area better than yeah. most. It just looked like that's where the Griffith Observatory would be. But again, it's just yeah. a matte painting. It, well, no, no, I... I I was kind of thinking the same thing because I was looking to see if there was an area where they covered the Hollywood sign yeah. with part of the mat. Yeah. So you would be right. Exactly to the right of that would be the uh, the observatory. Right, because so I, I saw the spire that, um, that someone's henchman, the guy, uh, what's his name? Uh, Stark, Starling's henchman shot uh -huh. oh, uh, yeah. Tuvok's Dodge <laughs> right. Ram uh, into yes. and obliterated it, you know, in right uh, Future's End, part one and two. Yeah, Right there. Yeah. All right, now we're, we're in Leonardo's new workshop here on this planet, and Janeway is having the conversation with Tuvok remotely. Okay, Tau, ta how the hell did he get there <laughs> and just hear that conversation Bear with me here, folks. The blocking Janeway is literally walking toward where he was standing. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, don't think too hard. Yeah, so there's that, and then there's this Janeway's talking to her communicator, and then obviously, you know what you just said, like Tal just appears out of nowhere. Yeah, and then he snaps his fingers and kind of like does the the motion oh. that miming of like hand it over yeah. to her, like like hand over your communicator. Yeah, how does an alien know that shorthand? <laughs> It's just maybe that's what one of the great universal truths is. It's just like how every language on earth has no, yeah, or, or some form of maybe that's yeah. well, it's he, also snap and yeah, motion. snap and, and, yeah. and hand over the communicator. It's just one of those things where I'm like, ah, that's a little too human for me, 
you know? Yeah. But anyway, but then again, so yeah. it's just disappearing you know, or appearing out of nowhere from whatever, you know? Right. Yeah. But here's the thing. Okay, Tao takes the com badge, but then he gets knocked out by Leonardo. <laughs> Janeway goes over and takes the weapon, which is very smart, but not her com badge. Janeway, you're, you're better than this. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Um, Harry tells Chakotay that the hollow emitter is 4.7 kilometers outside the city. That's our second. Golf clap. Second. Golf clap. 47 there reference. we go. Yeah. 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 Now, you know, I love my locations and we have mentioned the locations quite a bit, mm-hmm. but uh, the, the location of the industrial complex, it's, it, it's, I don't think it's great. <laughs> it's, it's just a little, it's a little too much like, well, we were just, we were driving down. Burbank Boulevard, yeah, and, and and there was this place that had a bunch of gears and pipes and stuff, and we stopped here and set up filming for the day. You know, yeah. somewhere along the line, that that must have made sense in the '90s. But you know, that whole quote unquote fortress that Leonardo yeah. and um, Catarina were at. Yeah. Now mm-hmm. I know production costs are a factor, but. It's just a little too 20th century for me, and it kind of... Yeah, it really it, is. It, it took me out of the fantasy of where they were, very much like in Star Trek 2009, the Budweiser plant. <laughs> yes, exactly. That, you know, that exactly. was, uh, that was yeah. the engineering room, quote-unquote. I'm doing air quotes mm-hmm. for the, those of you who can't see this. The quote-unquote, the engineering yeah. room of the Enterprise was supposed yeah. to take place. I'm like, you can't, no, it's just no. You know, yeah. too many pipes, too many valves, too many sprockets, you know, just too many 20th <laughs> century things. I have another pedantic question slash complaint here. Mm-hmm. Does this planet not revolve around its sun? Because mm-hmm. the, the whole idea of Leonardo determining that the secret entrance is on the side facing away from the sun, that, that only makes sense if the sun is in one place. Yeah. Because if it's east-west, okay, if the sun traverses east-west like it does on Earth, okay, it will either be on one side of the building or the other side of the building, mm-hmm. okay? So if that door is on the east or the west, it's going to get lit up. Or if that door is on the north or the south, it's just going to have daylight <laughs> because, you know, we all know you build your artist studios with north or south-facing windows to get that light, you know? It's a very difficult question to answer. You know, with alien yeah. north, south, east, and west. So, so difficult. Yeah. So it, it, it must be like our moon, just locked, <laughs> you know, locked in one place. Mm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, important to know, there are, I believe they number it as they call from Voyager. They're, they're watching this on the scanners from Voyager. There are 30 guards surrounding that building. Yeah. And then Tau shows up, and there must be more guards on their way. That, that's what I hear Janeway, I believe, say. And to you in the audience, th- this is how you stretch a budget. No, <laughs> no guards to be seen, <laughs> except for like one guy outside earlier and then one guy with Tao. That's, oh, it's the threat of guards that are coming that's important. It's the threat. Yeah. We, it's just they, they are assumed guards. Right. Assumed that, guards. That, that's, our, that's our album for today. Assumed guards. Album. Yeah. Right. That's our album. Right. Yeah. Also, these guards, really, Janeway has nothing to worry about because they're all really bad shots. I mean, <laughs> they're in a giant, slow-moving, winged flying machine, and Tao's just like, yeah, he can't hit it. <laughs> they must be stormtroopers of some kind. Yeah, yeah. So I, I know that Leonardo da Vinci, historically, is a genius. I understand that, yeah. right? But exactly how did he assemble his new flying machine out of modern materials, as Janeway pointed out, like duranium alloy, without right. knowledge of the tools to 
bend and heat and forge the metals. Yeah. Now, I, I know that this happened in 10 days, but and I know he's a genius, but this is a little like you know, asking like somebody to basically blacksmith like Iron Age tools with Bronze Age technology. Yeah. Right. Right. The metallurgy, right. it just, you don't know it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or build a computer out of stone knives and bearskins. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That. Mm-hmm. And look, in the end, uh, they get the mobile emitter back, which is great. Keep the doctor happy. They get the computer core back, which is great. But may I point out to you that they left a lot of other stuff on that planet. And these people are uh, traders. They are profiteers. I imagine that if you came back very soon after, it would be like Sigma Osha all over again, and this place would be crawling with replica Starfleet gear. Now that our concerning flight is underway, you are free to unfasten your seatbelts and move around the cabin, but not over there. Someone might randomly beam you away if you stand over there. We'll get right back to Concerning Flight after a word from this week's sponsor, Rocket Money. So here we are. We're winding down the holiday season, about to start the new year. And sometimes, if you're like me, you want to take a look at your bank balance because a lot of money has been going in, a lot more money has been going out, and sometimes you just feel it's flying out of your account. And you have no idea where it's going. Now, sometimes it's purchases here, sometimes it's purchases there, and I think sometimes it's subscriptions that you don't even remember subscribing to. And between streaming services and fitness apps and delivery services and parenting apps and apps and this and that, it's endless. And I am the first one to be guilty of all of that. So I used Rocket Money to help me find out what subscriptions I'm actually spending money on, and it was shocking. But... I had them cancel the ones I didn't want anymore. I, I think of it this way. I, did you find any subscriptions that you forgot about or any that you paid for twice and didn't realize it? Because I've been exactly in that same boat. In fact, I was in that same boat with my family very recently, finding multiple instances of subscriptions and finding subscriptions that have been completely forgotten about. Now, you can handle that the old-fashioned way and make a long list and go through every credit card statement, every bank statement, and try to identify those. Or you could let Rocket Money do the heavy lifting for you and find where those subscriptions and duplicates are with the push of a button. Now, if I ask you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to tell me? Would you be able to list them all and tell me how much you're paying? I can tell you that I might come up with a number off the top of my head and it would be completely wrong. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with Rocket Money, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels those unwanted subscriptions. Like John, you were saying duplicate subscriptions and it monitors your spending and it helps you lower your bills. How does it do that? Lowers your spending, reduces all of those unwanted subscriptions. I can see all of those in one place. And if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap at Rocket Money. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. And they'll even try and get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, 
and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. You know, that is such an important point that I think a lot of people overlook. One of the great features about Rocket Money Premium is that their customer service will do all the work. They will get on the phone. They will negotiate to lower your bill, and they'll help cancel those pesky subscriptions where maybe they're a little hesitant to uh, just instantly cancel if you request it. I think about it sometimes, and getting on the phone with a uh, customer service representative try to cancel something, that becomes a full-time job, and that's a job that I don't want. So I'm happy to let Rocket Money take that over for me. Now, Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Think about that number one more time. An average of $720 a year. To me, that is definitely money that I could spend someplace else and be a lot happier with it in my pocket. You work hard for your money and you want to save as much as you can. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Stop wasting money on double hits on subscriptions that you don't even remember subscribing to. Cancel those unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash mission log. That's rocketmoney.com slash mission log. Rocketmoney.com slash mission log. All right, Norman, sometimes you land upon an episode where I think there are some, some clever lines, some good ideas that are just kind of thrown out to us, the audience, to, to kick around. But then I, I ask myself, well, wait, is the episode actually about that or not? <laughs> or was it just it, the episode is kind of chugging along because you got plot point to plot point, And then, well, this seems like a good opportunity to drop in a line that is clever or interesting whether we revisit that or not, or dig deeper or not. And I do think that there is a nice exchange that Leonardo has with Captain Janeway. When are we not in prison? When are our lives free from the influence of those who have more power than us? And then fast forward a little bit, if this new world is a cage, then it is a cage of gold. And I think back to, well, the cage, the very first episode of Star Trek, and that is the idea partially that is being explored there. And we get to see that through two very different sets of eyes. We get to see it through Pike, who in the cage, not to be confused with Menagerie, is absolutely horrified at the idea of living in this cage, even though there is so much appeal there for a life that he kind of wishes he had. Mm -hmm. And then there is the very different appeal for Vina, who has been through the horror of that ship crash and wants to live out her life with that fantasy. And it was interesting to put those words into Leonardo's mouth, I thought, because the reality, in, in my mind, the reality is that Leonardo da Vinci would want to experience as much freedom as he can, but also as an artist who is beholden to his benefactors, there is a certain economic reality he has to deal with. Sure. But we're dealing with holodeck Leonardo. Yeah. And the holodeck characters, by their very nature, are bound by the confines of the holodeck, or in this case, the hollow emitter, which is kind of nice, but he's not even aware 
because, again, he is a holodeck character. He's not even aware of the difference of this being, quote unquote, a real world versus the holodeck constructed world of his workshop where he still has the freedom to go to France and find a new benefactor and do whatever he wants to do. They're, they're very big ideas like going on in this episode. And I, I wanted to um, address – because you've introduced like two or three of them. I, I, right there's here. a lot of stuff there. Right? Um, I, I wanted to address like if this new world is a cage and the cage of gold, you know, there's a, yeah. there's a famous Rush lyric from my favorite Rush song called Limelight. And it says that yeah. we're each another's audience outside a gilded cage, you know. So uh-huh. that's how we're our, our perception of each other may be because of, of the way that society has shaped the way that Leonardo has described who he is in his career. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of the episode. Mm-hmm. He is, he's frustrated, not because he failed. He's frustrated because the Florentine thought that he was a failure. Yeah. You know, because he yeah. fell because his, his machine didn't work. He's like, they don't understand that in the course of this process, there's going to be failure until you actually reach success. Right. But he doesn't have that intellectual connection with these people you know, because we're each and other's audience outside the gilded cage. Once you're in the gilded mm-hmm. cage, once you're with people of influence, with intelligence, you know, with understanding, with means, then you'll be able to experiment freely as he wants to, you know. But yeah. uh, that's going to get into a point I'm going to make a little bit later on. What I wanted to okay. talk about, though, is something that is uh, – it's, it's, it's problematic for me in this episode because you mentioned Leonardo being the – the hologram yes. version of Leonardo. Right. right. It's not Leonardo da Vinci. It's the hologram right. of Leonardo da Vinci. And there's a point that I want to make about genius cannot be programmed. Okay. All right. I'm, All right. I'm, I'm here so, to go with you on it. Yeah. All right. So Janeway says to Tuvok, you know, when Tuvok says he's just a hologram, Janeway mm-hmm. says, this is Leonardo da Vinci we're talking about. Simulation or not, he's one of the greatest creative minds in Earth's history. But he is still a simulation in this context. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I understand that Leonardo da Vinci is one of the greatest inventors and intellectuals human history has ever known. Yeah. But genius itself can't be programmed or codified, right? True genius is about being able to organically absorb and process and utilize information and turn it into something extraordinary, whether it's science or technology or art or music, poetry, whatever. Uh-huh. It, it's done in a way that can't be recreated and understood. That's why there's only one Mozart. There's only one Da Vinci. There's only one Einstein, right? Yeah. Their, their genius is activated at a certain point of inspiration. So you have that, you know, that famous Venn diagram of perspiration and inspiration right. and in the middle right. of that comes something magical right so right. it's it's not that his program is faulty it's just that it's only programmed based on the history that is known well okay right? let me ask you this i, I want to push back a little to see if you and certainly our audience because I'm, I'm curious what everybody has to say about this so the leonardo program is specifically based on all the knowledge of Leonardo da Vinci. And even today in the early 21st century, we have whatever existing books he had, whatever existing sketches and diagrams. There's a great museum. So there is a wealth of knowledge. And then hopefully there is even more to be uncovered in the future. So in theory, you could have a computer that synthesizes all of the information 
possible to know about Leonardo da Vinci. Yes. All right. And then that program would be somewhat limited because, yes, there are finite boundaries to that knowledge of Leonardo da Vinci. But the EMH is the same thing. The oh. EMH oh, – oh, have I got to step ahead of you here? No, no, okay. no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. All right. So the, the EMH – is a holographic entity that yes. is based on the synthesis of all the available medical knowledge that, that may be needed in Starfleet activation, in you mm -hmm. know Starfleet necessary places. But I think we can all agree that the doctor has grown beyond that programming. Has he been creative beyond that program? He, he created a family for himself. So right. is that not creativity? I think that – well, the thing is like I'm glad you brought that up because I brought that okay. up in my own notes too. And uh -huh. That's the great <laughs> juxtaposition right. between these two characters. When Janeway said what she said because she's basically vouching for Da Vinci why, why she was pushing back against Tuvok to keep him activated because he says he's one of the greatest creative minds in Earth's history. I understand that. That's true. I'm not debating that at all. I don't think that that's, that's part right. of the discussion. What right. I am right. debating is that Da Vinci's genius comes from a point of organic thought – and inspiration that can't be codified by what we understand from history. History only understands mm -hmm. Da Vinci from his manuals, you know, from his teachings, from anything that has been written down or has been diagrammed or has been, you know, again, created in artwork, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's Da Vinci. But what you can't capture is the moment when he looks at a bird and says, I need to find a way to make this fly. I need to understand mm -hmm. the mechanism of mm -hmm. the science that makes mm -hmm. a bird fly to capture flight or a butterfly or a ray of sunlight, you know, yeah. or things of that nature that can't be caught because he didn't write those things down. Right. You know, those points right. of inspiration right. that created this vast unlocking of the universe that he did. Yeah. Right. So that's something that again, with the doctor, the doctor was programmed to understand every single possible point of data about medicine. Yeah. No one's disputing that. The inspiration for him to grow isn't the same as Da Vinci's pre-programmed body of knowledge that Janeway says that that is his genius. You mm -hmm. can't you can't recapture Da Vinci's genius because it's uncapturable if that's a word. Huh. Right. Okay. But the doctor, the doctor was created by Zimmerman and yeah. Zimmerman said the EMH needs to have this body of knowledge yeah. as a program. Anything past that is the doctor, but he's already born of a certain library of knowledge. You can't recreate Da Vinci's library of knowledge because it never existed historically for people to have in, to begin with. But see, here's where I think though that holodeck leonardo is clearly a a different entity from the real leonardo da vinci and maybe it's the the nature of what the holodeck program does maybe it's the nature of the hollow emitter maybe it's the nature of having outside unpredictable influence but we get to a point in this episode where holodeck leonardo has decided to go off to france and this Leonardo that is going off to France, just speculate, if you will, that that holodeck program keeps running. You know, it's, it's like uh, Moriarty sitting in that little box on Picard's desk, right? Right, right. It could just theoretically keep running. This Leonardo goes to France 
with the knowledge that he has gained in his time on that alien world with a working flying machine. And literally at that point then, I, I, I suppose it's not Leonardo, but it is the holodeck mechanism that has a certain level of creativity that is now making an alternate history <laughs> well, sure. of, you know, and, and sure. you're literally, so that, that Leonardo, you could write a whole other, uh, turn this into a novel or a graphic novel. Here's Leonardo mm -hmm. going to France to beat the king, but guess what? Now the flying machine works. Yeah. And now this Leonardo has knowledge of a weapon that fires lightning. And right. yeah, okay. You could change the course of human history, but that's like a wonderful right. like alternative universe, like, you know, uh, an Elseworlds, if you will, if you're a comic book fan. But that is a creative change that has occurred in this thing that is just purely a construct of the holodeck computer. I mean, yeah, I'm you not, I'm yeah, not disagreeing yeah. with the, with the fact that he has the ability to learn. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's yeah. just that when when uh, Janeway says, you know, this is Leonardo da Vinci we're talking about, it's not. It's not. <laughs> I agree. I agree. You know, it is a simulation. I mean, she says simulation or not, he's one of the greatest creative minds in Earth's history. Now, what he takes with the stimuli that happens, you know, him at and yeah. after the fact is different. Yeah. You know, and obviously someone of his genius intellect would be incredibly influential when it comes to absorbing any kind of information. Because I think one of the things that, you know, we don't want to gloss over too much is that he is not close minded to the opportunity of learning. Well, you know? I do think that's one of the strengths of the episode and one of the strengths of the portrayal of Leonardo da Vinci is that he and this is good writing is that yeah. he doesn't know more than Leonardo da Vinci would know. like, And that's critical because mm -hmm. you can't have a Leonardo da Vinci then that, okay, he sees the phaser, he picks it up, this is an incredible weapon, look what it can do. But he is not a Leonardo da Vinci that suddenly understands what a transistor or a transstator, if we're being Star Trek here, mm -hmm. he doesn't understand what those are or what a you know warp plasma manifold is. He He just knows that it's parts and he's in a new world, and he has new materials, and he's in a new world. And, and, and Janeway also says that he describes yeah. things as they, if they were of his time. Right, right. Right? Yeah, so and, and that's, I think that's, that's quite good. And coming back around toward the end of the episode, I really like her scene, uh, not not confronting him, but but trying to match the intellectual curiosity and concern that he has about where he is. And she says, and, and as a man, can you accept that there may be certain realities beyond the limits of your comprehension? And he says, if I could not accept that, then I would be a fool. And it, it's a really nice line that speaks to his intellectual curiosity and playing in that space of even not knowing what you don't know. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it reminds me of uh, a, a meme that's been going around quite a bit lately, and it's uh, uh, just a, a quick grab of an interview that Neil deGrasse Tyson was doing with someone in describing, you know, human beings having about a 3% difference in DNA with chimpanzees, and yet we cannot have a conversation with chimpanzees. We, we are unable to match them or have them match us intellectually and being able to find common ground there. So imagine then an alien species that has a 3% difference genetically with us. And there you have it, you know, so it is a leap of our imagination to then be able to tell ourselves like, oh, wait, for as much as we think we can understand, there are very clearly things in the universe that we 
don't know that we don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's the arrogance, it's the hubris of humanity that says, we know. We're yeah. just going to fake it till we make it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and I think exactly. that's, 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 a, that's a huge, huge, huge problem. I want to switch uh, gears a little bit here, though. Yeah, towards- please. So, I mean, there's a there's a wonderful story with, with Janeway and with Da Vinci and, and what we've been talking mm-hmm. about just in terms of, you know, what what this program is capable of doing. But I want to go revisit uh, a topic that's – it's it's a little – it's important to me and it's a little sensitive, mm-hmm. I think, in, in terms of representation in Star Trek. This is kind of like – you know, you have to ask the question, will Harry always be an ensign Ooh. because of the way he acts, right? So Ugh. there's a scene that I want to bring up. And, and I know that maybe some of the audience out there, they're probably tired of hearing me say this, but you know what? That's because you're not uh, an Asian male that's Harry's age and has been misrepresented so far in Star Trek. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I will say that, you know, uh, openly. And if you want to send me the emails, please do. <laughs> when Seven says to Harry, when he arrived to help her in the astrometrics lab, Her, uh, Seven says, an algorithmic feedback is interfering with a resolution. Decompile data, banks 59 through 17, and attempt to isolate it now. Yeah. Or you should leave. Seven is addressing Harry Kim, Ensign Harry Kim, an officer of Starfleet and an officer of Voyager, as if he were the junior officer to her. Yeah. And why? That's the big question that I want to ask. Why? More importantly, why does he let her? And Ugh. most importantly, why are the writers writing him this way? Okay. Yeah. And he really doesn't stand up for himself. So he acts like the model minority. Like, I'm just here to help. I'm here mm. to help. I'm apologizing mm. if I've offended thee, but I'm here to help. Yeah. So this should not exist in the Gene Roddenberry 24th century, right? Yeah. Star Trek leads us to believe, and Starfleet leads us to believe that someone like a Harry Kim is one of the best and brightest that humanity has to offer. And yet, in this particular situation, and in revulsion, he shrinks away from the authority that he has earned. Yeah. And he has worked hard for. So, for me, as someone who is, 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 is not only Garrett's you know, contemporary, you know, hmm. but Harry's contemporary as well, it's like the potential of having somebody cast and represented as this young Asian man... It's so misused in this series and squandered. I feel like this is one of those examples of Star Trek casting representation, quote unquote, being more lip service and pandering just to say, hey, look, we have diversity in our cast, but they don't really know what to do with it. Yeah. Look, I'm going to take this a little bit of a sidestep because I I totally get and respect where you're coming from and you have a specific and unique reaction and understanding of this. I've already voiced my outrage over the scenes in revulsion. Mm. And then the fact that that would come back as a wink, wink, nudge, nudge point in his interaction with Bolana a couple episodes later. And here we are again, a couple more episodes later, and we keep playing this really unearned relationship with these, not even a relationship, this antagonism uh, that is really uncomfortable. And what I wish would come out of it, what I wish had come out of it two episodes ago or three episodes ago, or, or at least resolved by now, is that 
you can take a character like Harry. Of course, we've had him now for three and a half years. You can take a character who was wet behind the ears back when it was caretaker, right? Mm-hmm. But this guy has got to have found some agency by now. He's and died, John. He's died and he's come died. back. Yeah. yeah. And, and was replaced by other Harry. <laughs> right. You know, this is somebody who has been through a lot, who has worked hard, earned the position that he has, as you so correctly pointed out. And to not give him the agency of being able to course correct and realize like, oh, wait, I'm better than this. And I'm better than being put down by this person. I'm better than being made fun of for this supposed, you know, quote unquote failure. Again, big finger quotes here with seven. Like that is really driving home what is a bad joke to begin with. Norman and John are about to bring this concerning flight in for a landing, so please stow your tray tables and return your seats to their upright position. There's a an Iron Maiden lyric, John, that I'd like to bring up for you. <laughs> oh, we, I don't. I think this is a mission log first. Yeah, I don't think Iron we Maiden. Quoted Iron Maiden. Yeah. So there's a song of theirs from an album called Peace of Mind, and mm. there's a, a lyric from the Flight of Icarus. Fly like your way on like an eagle. Fly uh, too high to the sun, and this is like something like that is very akin to a uh, concerning flight because you don't want to fly too close to the no. sun, right? You don't want to be like Icarus. You don't want to be the flight of Icarus, you know. But we came really, really close. I think to maybe melting a little of the the wax in our feathers. Maybe coming too close to the sun with our discussion. Uh, so with, with, with our strong opinions. With our strong yeah. opinions. So, yeah. we're, you know, as we do here in Mission Log, you know, we look at um, does this episode hold up? And, and we're going to see if we can find like the morals, meanings and messages. But I think that you may have tipped your hand a little bit on how you feel. <laughs> About this I've been doing this too. I've been doing this too long. Where yeah. where sometimes it is, I come out hot, and I feel like the the opinion, the wrap up is already built into the intro. Maybe maybe not quite that far back, but yeah. Look, when we're concerning concerning flight, uh, I feel like I should love this episode. I mean, look, John Reese Davies is so fun to watch, and I like spending time on location and letting Voyager be fantastical. One might even say whimsical from time to time. But the problem is I don't love this episode and I couldn't help but sit here and analyze it rather than just letting it be the escapist episode that it is meant to be, that it is intended to be. I think part of the problem is with the plot that there are so many coincidences and things that just happen rather than unfold logically that feel like they're actually motivated. And that makes me feel very disconnected from the story. And you can go back and listen to their observations segment where I'm saying like, okay, a guy just shows up. Tao is just in the room and they just got this piece of equipment and they just showed up (laughs) at the fortress. You know, it's stuff like that, that I'll give you one or two of those in an episode, because sometimes you just have to have the shorthand to make 
the story happen. But when I feel like the whole story is based around moments like that, it really takes me out of it. But I can really appreciate the problem here, or at least the opportunity here for the writers and for the production. Okay, you got a great actor. And we don't want to be stuck in the holodeck for an entire episode with that actor. And we don't want to do another holodeck goes insane episode. So what do we do? Well, you think outside the box, which this episode is very clearly trying to do. But I can't say that it works. I I can't say that maybe like the EMH's program, it is greater than the sum of its parts. (laughs) You know, and maybe that is partly inherent in the differences in the Leonardo program versus the EMH program is the Leonardo Leonardo program really can't be bigger than the sum of its parts. That's kind of what happens in this episode. Now, look, I will remember John Rhys-Davies performance as Leonardo very fondly can't say that I'm going to remember this episode the same way. And uh, honestly, I was surprised to go back to the notes and, and think, oh, wait, we've only seen him twice. Yeah. And this is it because he feels like a much bigger presence across Voyager. Uh, and I think partly because he has some really nice moments with Janeway here. But I will look at this as a missed opportunity like, wow, we could have gotten so much more out of him. It could have been a much more interesting story. I think they aimed high, but maybe I'm feeling the same frustration that Joe Minoski felt here. No, I mean, that's fair. I mean, I, I, hmm. I wanted to love this episode for its ideas, but I just ended up just liking it. And it was kind of one of mm-hmm. those go nowhere, do nothing episodes. <laughs> right, GND and right? Star Trek. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. that it was like wonderfully uncomplicated in one way. But mm. could have serviced certain things in a different way. Uh, I think that it could have fallen flat entirely if it weren't for the fact that you had John Rhys Davies as Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, he's yeah. he's a powerhouse yeah. actor. I mean, he's graced the small screen, he's graced the large screen, he's graced you know the the live stage. Yeah, uh, he is just a tour de force. But it's it's hard to lean on a talent like that and say that this is what makes the episode great. And it's really one of the only things that makes this episode great. I, I do love the fact that the, the construct of Leonardo da Vinci is kind of like this walking, talking dynamic living argument between Leonardo da Vinci and his consciousness about Arthur C. Clarke's third law. Oh, uh, right, you no. Know, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, because there's a scene where Da Vinci says to to Janeway, "I cannot believe it. I will not believe it. My mind cannot accept the evidence of my eyes. Is this sorcery? Are we in purgatory?" Janeway mm-hmm. says, "Neither. You said yourself this place was full of marbles." Da Vinci says, "Marbles, yes, but this is magic." Enchantment, not science. And I refuse to believe in enchantment. I love Uh, that he's wrestling with what his genius intellect knows and what he has experienced. You know, and that's where Clark's third law comes into place. But I do think that this episode really kind of like finds its center where Janeway says to Da Vinci, as a sparrow, your mind would be too small, even with the best of teachers. And Da Vinci says, as Aristotle himself were to perch on my branch and lecture till he fell off from exhaustion, still the limits of my <laughs> mind would prevent me from understanding the limits of your comprehension. And Da Vinci says, I could not accept that, and I would be a fool. Yeah, I think that th- that's the scene where 
everything crystallized in that Gene Roddenberry kind of way where you have a wonderful episode, again, a GNDN episode, mm-hmm. but then you have this moment like three quarters of the way in. And I think that because it's so well acted and because maybe, you know, uh, John Reese davies found this humility in Da Vinci that maybe we have not yet seen before or maybe understood about Da Vinci. Because think about where he came from the beginning of the episode to the end of the episode. In the beginning of the episode, he was yelling at the Florentine thing, you're idiots, you're fools, yeah. you're animals. And now he's like, I don't understand everything, right? Yeah. And I think that's a good lesson for us. I think that my only real critique about this episode is once again, we see Harry marginalized and his yeah. character marginalized for no reason, but at least for me as an audience member, just like yourselves out there, just to reference like this cringe worthiness relationship mm-hmm. that he has mm-hmm. with seven. Mm-hmm. And that started in a revulsion. So sometimes, and um, again, this is, this is my opinion only. I, my opinion does not reflect the, the opinions of either John or, or Roddenberry entertainment, but mm-hmm. sometimes I feel that casting representation in star Trek is more lip service and pandering than to say, and, and just to say, Hey, look, there's diversity in our casting yeah. to the audience, yeah. as opposed to leaning into understanding what that casting actually really means to the people who are watching it that find it significant, like me. Like when I saw Garrett cast as as an Asian man my age, yeah, and then seeing him fall under the same complexities of a man my age in the twenty fourth century, mm-hmm. it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, he needed to grow. He, he needed to grow beyond his programming. <laughs> you know? Humanity in general had a need needed to grow beyond yeah. his programming here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, you know, uh, trying to come up with some messages. What what do we take away? We learn the rest of you do not have the privilege of looking at our page of notes that Norman and I share with each other, and very specifically, we do not share our notes with each other going into the uh, episode recording, as most everybody knows. And I took no notes for this section, which you probably saw like, oh, hey, there's nothing there. <laughs> you know, I never uh, worry uh, about you, John. You're a professional, like, par excellence. Uh, well, yeah. well uh, in History of the World Part 1, they called that something else. Um, <laughs> <laughs> an improviser, right? Yeah. Uh, they called it something else. Because I think this episode does not get to a place where it actually has a message. I think this is a whimsical plot-driven episode that is designed to get our characters together and have them go on an adventure. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. There are plenty of episodes of Star Trek where that happens and your mileage may vary as to whether that connects with you and you enjoy it. Or if you're like me with this one and you say like, I'm not quite connected here. I think that there are many great scenes here, and I'm glad that you pulled the dialogue from those that almost give us something to think about. But the problem is the episode never actually takes the chance for that to be a thing that it is about. So there's this question here of whether or not the Leonardo program can grow beyond the series of ones and zeros that it is with with the very definite parameters that it has is that spark of creativity actually there and i 
very much like your argument that it is not, that it, it, it can't be by definition. So we don't really have a way to grow to that. And does that become maybe even an existential problem for this holographic program? Could that Leonardo have some self-awareness in the way that Moriarty does or that the EMH does and say, well, wait, I could potentially grow beyond what I am, but I am a historical figure, therefore I can't. Right. I mean, that This would be interesting stuff, right? And I think less so for Leonardo, but hopefully for the audience, we do get to ponder this idea that, that you pulled my other favorite lines here in the episode about Leonardo having to grapple with the idea that there is a truth to reality beyond what he can experience with his very limited knowledge. This is one of those moments where Star Trek does a pretty good idea every now and then of giving us like a cosmic reset and saying, well, you think you're pretty smart as humans. You think you have these things like the scientific method and a spark for creativity and a way to work through problems. However, remember, you might actually just be that sparrow sitting on a tree branch <laughs> and as hard as someone else might come along and try to explain to you that there is a whole world, a whole universe beyond that, you may not even comprehend it. And I think that's a pretty good lesson to remind ourselves of every now and then that the universe is a much bigger, much more complex and grand place than than we think of it here from being perched on our branch on Earth. So. There you go, Norman. What else you got for us? You know, for a non-scripted insight, that was absolutely beautiful, John. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Look, Star Trek did the work. I just had to process it a little bit. I, I, I love messages when it comes to uh, free will and free thought. And there is a quote that Da Vinci says that crystallizes this episode for me, for a message. When are we not in prison? Hmm? When are our lives free from the influence of those who have more power than us? If this new world is a cage, then it is a cage of gold, of marvels, of opportunities. If this prince is violent, violence can be tempered. When I saw that line, not only was it beautifully acted you know, by John Rhys Davies, mm. but it struck such a chord in me because it's not just a powerful message from Da Vinci's time, but it's a powerful message now, right? And when you take this in context of... Today's socio-political climate, it seems more relevant than ever. Now, in this episode, Da Vinci is frustrated to the point of rage, right? Because his ability to think openly, to engage in critical discussion, to fearlessly create, right? To fail spectacularly. All of these freedoms, right, are in many ways scrutinized by what we have been programmed as a society at large to think and to feel and to follow, how many times on social media do we applaud and pile on failures, right? But how many times do we mm -hmm. applaud success? I mean, yeah. kind of like do the math on that, right? So how much talent, you know, has been squandered in our society because the society, you know, refuses to embrace diversity and cultural differences? How many geniuses like Leonardo da Vinci have been silenced this way? How much human potential has been squandered because individual achievement and expressive freedoms don't conform, conform to the status quo of 
societal norms, quote unquote, right? Now, with Leonardo da Vinci's quote, I agree that the cage is gilded, sure. But there's also Mm -hmm. a cautionary tale with da Vinci's belief that the grass is greener on the other side of the world because that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to leave Italy. He wanted to go to America. He wanted to find something that was more promising, more accepting, more open-minded. But at the same time, though, until we reach that stage where humanity is on Gene Roddenberry's side of the vision that showed us that that shows us that these barriers that hold us back, that divides us and separates us from coming together to reach our fullest potential as a human race, we will unfortunately continue to feel as Da Vinci feels when small-minded people, ignorant people en masse, prevent us from moving towards this better future. I will quote Rush. Ah, yes. Uh, Once again, and this is unscripted, though. This is, again, from Limelight, Mm. though. All the world's indeed a stage. We are merely players, performers, and portrayers, each another's audience, outside the Gilded Cage. Nice. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Mortal Coil. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Schaubel, Paul Shadwell, and David Takechi. We know you have a choice when you travel, so thank you for joining us on what was apparently a very concerning flight. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.